Hi, this is John, the creator of Tale of the Manticore. I wanted to add this note to the first episode of Season 2 to thank you sincerely for giving my podcast a shot. There's a lot to choose from out there. Right off the bat, I want to mention that you don't need to have listened to any of Season 1 to understand Season 2. It's designed to stand alone. I hope, whether you've listened to all of Season 1 or if this is your first experience with the show, that you'll find that your time here is well spent. Just before we jump in, a quick word about what you can expect from the show, where sensitive materials are concerned. There are frequent and detailed descriptions of violence, accompanied by graphic sound effects. Sexual assault and torture are sometimes referred to, but I do not explore, dwell upon, or describe them in detail. In some rare cases where I find I might have a toe over the line, you can expect an additional disclaimer with more information at the start of the relevant episode. As for sex and profanity, they both exist in my fictional world, but I do not have any intention of writing about them in a meaningful way. With that said, Tale of the Manticore is definitely intended for a mature audience, and listener discretion is advised. I hope this information will help you to decide whether or not my podcast is right for you. One more time, because it cannot be overstated. Thank you for listening. And now, on with the show. Chapter Zero One Year Ago Winton spun around just in time so that the three darts punched into his backpack, discharging their poisoned payload into leather instead of his flesh. Gods be damned traps! It was the third one they had triggered, but only the second they had avoided. Eliora had been killed by a spring-loaded spear hidden in the ceiling when she opened the second door. It had punched through the top of her skull, right in the middle, and the poor girl had stood, dead on her feet, like a piece of spitted meat, before her body slid free of the blade and crumpled to the floor. Now there were just two of them. Just him and Laris. He had almost lost Laris too. The chest had almost done him in. His longtime friend was a skilled lockpicker. It had only taken a few minutes for him to defeat the mechanism while Winton held the torch. But when he flipped the latch, a tiny needle coated in black powder had scratched his thumb. Luckily, Laris was also a quick thinker and had sucked the poison out in time. The chest itself had been a fake. It was a solid block of wood and did not even open. Tale of the Manticore is both a game and a story. Quite often, you can expect to hear interruptions like this one as I switch roles from narrator to DM. Most of the time, when I roll dice on the show, you'll know exactly what they're for, but sometimes I'll explain them later on or even forego the explanation altogether. The dice you heard at the beginning were for Winton's saving throw to avoid the poison darts. He passed the check, so the darts did not hit him. You'll hear some more dice in a few minutes. These are for another saving throw, but I'm going to leave you in the dark as to what they're for. Okay, let's get back to the story. Are you hit? His friend asked. Winton quickly shrugged off the pack and frowned at the offending darts. I'm good. Don't think I want to wear this any longer. You'd be dead by now if they got you, Winnie. He shrugged, pretending calm as if poison darts were beneath his concern. You look just like a baby when you were sucking your thumb back then, you know that. <laughs> well, I'm alive, aren't I? Just like a baby. Mind you skip this step? I'm sure the trap's discharged. I'm not scared. It's your funeral, you big baby. Well, I'll be a rich baby, won't I? Said Laris, carefully stepping over the pressure plate, despite his brag. They reached the bottom of the narrow stairs, and their torch, now carried by Laris, sputtered. They were in an unfinished, square chamber, thick with cobwebs and undisturbed dust, as the rest of the tomb had been. An open archway led into a hallway opposite the stairs. Winton turned to Laris. His best friend had a face like a rat's, 
His nose and prominent overbite came together in a point. Long, greasy dark hair hung over each shoulder and down his back in tangles. Ugly as he was, he was not only Winton's best friend, but one of his only friends, and he loved him in a way. He could joke about Laris's funeral, but the thought of his friend leaving him alone in this place filled him with dread. He almost said something to that effect, but instead chose to repeat his taunt. A big, big baby. That's, that's just what you look like. He dropped his pack to the ground. It made a muffled clang on the flagstone, and then he kicked it away. There was nothing in there but a filthy cloak, a quarter loaf of stale bread, and an old frying pan anyway. His tone changed. Do you really reckon we'll be rich, Harris? Well, somebody's bothered to set all these traps. Uh, not for nothing. Pass me the torch. Winton held out his hand, and Laris passed him the brand. Be careful. You're in front. You be careful. The two of them passed under the arch and entered the passage beyond. The air was cooler here, and both men became aware of a strange sensation, like a weight on their heart. Mm, I'll be happy to get out of here, mumbled Winton. Too bad about Eleora, replied Laris. She was a good kid. Laris's brow furrowed. Eleora's older brother was an extremely dangerous man. If he found out that she'd come here with them... There's something ahead. Another room. Aye. Keep a sharp eye, Winnie. The pair entered a chamber that was slightly larger than the last, and decidedly colder. Despite the burning brand in his hand, Winton's breath was a visible vapor. Other than the archway by which they had entered, the room had no exits, and was essentially featureless, save for a large stone sarcophagus with a heavy slab lid. Inexplicably, there was no dust on it. It hadn't been swept off, either. It simply wasn't there. Besides being dust-free, the lid had two features that the would-be Tomb Raiders found noteworthy. One was a large symbol, chiseled into the stone surface. The second was a palm-sized metallic disc, possibly made of copper, that shone slightly red in the torchlight. Well, well, look here. I don't like the look of that marking, though. Have you got cheese for brains? That symbol is nothing to be frightened of. Since when can you read? Sneered Winton, looking over his shoulder. Don't need to be able to read to recognize that. It's the symbol of Sadal, Winnie. You simpleton. God. Winton looked unconvinced. Are you sure? Yeah. This is what happens when you get your education from whores and fishmongers. Winton could practically feel Laris rolling his eyes, and he scrunched up his mouth in shame. Nobody cares about that dusty old god anymore, he muttered. Oh, I think you'll find they do. Sadal might be a little out of fashion, but the elders haven't forgotten him. Winton shrugged. He reached out and picked up the metal disc. It was extremely cold. When he brought it up to the fire, he saw that what he had taken for copper was actually red gold. He turned it over, expecting another featureless side, and found that the disc had been placed face down on the sarcophagus lid. On the reverse side was an image of a radiating sun, except the rays were dotted with set diamonds, and the ball of the sun itself was completely made up of alternating citrines and yellow sapphires. Winton blew out his breath very slowly. Excitement welled up in his belly. He couldn't take his eyes off the way the torchlight played across the surface of this treasure. It was clearly worth a king's ransom. Laris, we really are going to be rich. We'll be as rich as gods, you and I. We'll be richer than... Winton sprayed out a mist of blood before he could finish his sentence. Laris had rammed the steel tip of a dagger between his shoulder blades, and it had punctured one of his lungs. The rat-faced man let his former companion slump to the ground, and then, with his eyebrows drawn together and his upper lip curled, snarled before kicking the priceless holy symbol of Sadal into a dusty corner. <sighs> then, he simply stood, motionless. 
Had anyone else been there to see it, they might have said he looked transfixed or mesmerized. Winton's torch still burned on the ground. It threw Laris's shadow hugely against the ceiling and into the passageway behind him. The thief made no move to pick it up, or to leave, or to do anything. He just stood there and waited, and waited, and waited. Eventually the torch went out, and still he stood there in the darkness, waiting, until... The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Once again, welcome to Season 2 of Tale of the Manticore. I appreciate your time and will try my best to make every episode exciting and compelling. Since some people listening to this will not have listened to Season 1, I thought it would be worth spending a minute or two explaining exactly what the show is all about. I began this podcast two years ago, when the start of the pandemic and general shutdown of the whole world coincided with my desire to return to TTRPGs. I'd been away from the game for over two decades. Without the option of an in-person game, and given my terrible Wi-Fi, I somehow discovered solo gaming, something I hadn't even been aware of, let alone interested in before. Then came the idea to make the podcast that, until then, I'd been trying to find. I'd been searching for something immersive, dramatic, and most importantly, serious. So I arrived at this idea for a hybrid between actual play and audio drama. About four or five episodes in, I started thinking I was onto something. The story I was telling through my solo game was better than my old D&D games had ever been. Much better, actually. I decided to make a show that was different from other D&D podcasts. Episodes would be short. I'd spend a lot of time on editing and production, and make it more of a show than the usual fishbowl experience. Most of all, I would let the dice decide the story. This way, I'd never know what was going to happen next. I'd be pretty much in the same boat as the listener. Okay, that's enough by way of introduction. I've got my dice ready. Let's dive back in. Chapter 1 Part 1 Day 1 Early Autumn Two hours after midnight There were five of them making their way through the alleys of Silmoral towards the Fall Fallow Inn and Tavern. Major streets were best avoided at this time of night. The City Watch would, by now, be bored and looking for something to do, and beating up a bunch of skegs for an hour was considered decently entertaining. Gamlin still clutched a drumstick in his hand and gnawed on it as they walked. Though Tana knew he hadn't eaten anything else that day, she was unsurprised when he threw it to a mangy dog with visible ribs that had been following them. He's a good boy, said rough-voiced Gamlin, wiping chicken grease on his shirt. 
Other than Tana and Gamlin, the shabby band included Nafia the Small and Flick, who were both younger than the others by three years, and Ratleg, who was the only one among them who owned a weapon larger than a dagger. It was forbidden to carry weapons on the streets of Silmoral, and each time any of the others had managed to acquire an actual sword, it had been taken away by the city watch and paid for with a beating. Perhaps they'd be able to afford new ones if this job went well. The job itself was simple enough. Fat Monogren had been very brief in his instructions. Get to the Fall Fallow unseen and unfollowed. Enter through the back. Get into the cellar. Touch nothing upstairs. In the cellar, they would find three unarmed priests who were new recruits and were to be slain to send a bloody message. Those who join the church were as good as dead. Now, these were not real men of the cloth, and this was not the church as most people would understand the word. In Silmoral, there were priests, and then there were priests. To the likes of Tana and her crew, these men were members of the rival thieves' guild known as the Church. The Church was old and very well established in Silmoral, although some people believe their name came from their tendency to pray at the altar of money. Gamlin knew the truth. They took their name from their founder, Moro Genhart, a man dead for over a hundred years now. Genhart was said to have prayed to Shartun, the so-called happy prisoner and patron saint of thieves. Apparently, he did so every single night without fail. His followers took to calling him Father Genhart, and later the bishop. Long after his death, which was another story entirely, his followers still went by the church. Gamlin's guildmaster and founder had a name too, and he had the admirable distinction of being still alive. He was known as the Weeping Eye. Of course, they'd never met him. Access to the leader was strictly off-limits. But if they proved themselves loyal, perhaps one day they would meet him or her. For now, their captain was Fat Monogren. Monogren had managed to bribe one of the serving girls at the Fall Fallow for, as he put it, less than he was willing to pay, just three gold coins, and she had left the back door unlocked when she left at the end of her shift. I could have picked that lock and saved him the money. Better yet, he could have given it to me, boasted Radleg. Doubt that sniffed Gamlin. Hey, we're almost there. Look lively. The quintet negotiated a slim space between two buildings, too narrow to be called an alley, and emerged within sight of the rear of the inn. It was a handsome structure, three stories of whitewashed wood. It had closed shutters that had been painted with various scenes ranging from court ladies to jousting knights. Follow me, said Gamlin. No more talking from now on. He led them straight to the back door, which was unlocked, as promised. He pushed it gently and entered a darker space beyond. Without the moonlight, there was almost no illumination here at all. The only light was a thin horizontal line that marked the bottom of the door to the lower level. There was a smell in the tavern, a mixture of food, mop water, and stale beer that reminded Gamlin of Ratleg's farts. Ratleg had the bunk above his back at their lodgings, and the man's gas was relentless. When Nafia, who brought up the rear, pulled the door to the outside shut, Gamlin pushed the inside door open, bathing his gaunt face in muted lamplight and revealing a set of wooden stairs leading down. He flicked his eyes over to his companions and mimed a little kiss in the air in front of him. This was the sign to indicate that the way ahead was clear. All the same, as they moved forward, they slid their blades out from their leather bracers and boot tops. Radleg slid his short sword free of its scabbard. He smiled, thinking that this would be fun. Thank <laughs> you.
Hello there, I'm Calvin Piper, host and DM of the Wild Magic School Bus, the most unprofessional D&D podcast you'll ever hear. Excuse me, how can you call us unprofessional? Uh, one second, Ohiana, I'm recording a trailer. Join me and my friends each Monday as we travel through the fantasy world of Talrun Mall, a land divided between magic and man. Hold on, uh, are we just going to exclude lizards from that? And robotic sidekicks that were once lizards? Oddly specific, but sure, we can include them. So come along for the ride on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows, and listen to D&D the way it was meant to be endured. All right, everyone on the bus. All right. Hey, uh, Zeph, what's a podcast? Oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, Tabini, a uh, podcast is when... When a group of people love each other very, very much, and they want to. This is Time Pop, a podcast about time travel movies. Each episode, we take a deep dive into a time travel film and talk about all the insanity and madness that happens when you travel through time. Tell our new fans some of the episodes they could listen to right now. Okay. The Adjustment Bureau. See You Yesterday. The Time Machine. Live, Die, Repeat. Primer. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Avengers With many more time travel movies in our future. Join me, Ari. Scott. And Dez for Time Pop. Gamlin was halfway down the stairs, which hugged the wall on one side, and were open to empty air on the other. The space at the bottom was quite large, being of the same dimensions as the first floor seating area and kitchens combined. At the foot of the steps, Gamlin saw an assortment of barrels, stacked crates, and piled sacks surrounded by grain dust. There were lanterns, two of them, hanging on hooks that provided plenty of warm light. He wasn't sure exactly at which point things started to feel wrong. He was enjoying the prospect of speaking a few barbed lines to the men he found here. In his mind, he was selecting just the right thing to say, the way a nobleman might choose a confection from a platter. He might call them baby bishops, or say something about new blood being spilled too easily. When he cleared the thick line of earth and timber, where the floor of the first level became the ceiling of the basement, he ducked a little and saw, just as he expected, three young men. Except these men did not look like they were being interrupted, and, disturbingly, they did not look at all afraid. Two of them were seated on a big crate. The third man stood behind it. When they made eye contact, the man who was standing smiled at Gamlin. Perhaps that was the moment he knew things were not as they should be. Whatever poisoned words he might have prepared dried up in his mouth. Gamlin settled for raising his knife and smiling back. The two youths, Gamlin now noticed that one of them was impressively tall and broad-shouldered, slipped off the crate almost casually while the man behind it unfolded a long leather wrapper that had been between them. By now, Gamlin's boots were on the hard-packed dirt floor. His gang was right behind him. The leather wrapper on the crate, it turned out, contained three long swords. The moment one of them was picked up and he saw the glint of steel, Gamlin knew they were in real trouble. Instinct told him to run, but there was nowhere to go. His own companions blocked the way back up, and the room had no other exits. There was nothing for it but to stick with the original plan and push the fear away. He spat on the dusty floor and approached the strangers. The one who'd been smiling no longer wore any such expression. The three of them fanned out, mirroring Gamlin's group as they spread apart. When he heard the sound of boots on the steps behind him, Gamlin knew that they had just been caught in their own trap. That sound was accompanied by the distinct hiss of drawn steel. He turned around to see two more enemies on the stairs. It would be five on five, but they would be surrounded, and their daggers suddenly felt very inadequate. Andrew 
I thought it might be fun to start this season in truly random fashion. I dreamt up the idea of two warring thieves' guilds. One is new and shares the same name as its leader, the Weeping Eye. This is the guild to which Gamlin and his companions belong. The other guild is large and well-established. It is called the Church. Either one would be interesting to play, as I could imagine both having certain strengths and weaknesses. Whoever wins this fight, they'll become the first PCs of the game. And what happens after that? I have no idea. With 10 combatants, I'm going to keep things simple. The Weeping Eyes all wield daggers, except for Ratleg, who has a short sword. The Church each carry a longsword. To balance things a little, I'll say that the Weeping Eyes group contains two fighters. That'll be Tana and Ratleg, with eight hit points each, and three thieves, each with four hit points. The Church members are all four hit point thieves. Nobody is wearing any armor, so everyone's armor class will be a rock bottom 10. A quick reminder here to Season 1 listeners that I am switching to Ascending AC here in Season 2. Finally, I won't bother rolling up stats and such until I know who wins, which means it's time for Round 1. There's no chance for surprise here. Also, none of the combatants have missile weapons they're willing to throw. So, it's straight to melee. Initiative. The Weeping Eyes. A 3. The Church. A 4. Looks like Gamlin noticed those two on the stairs, just a little too late. A large member of the church rushes Tana, who is standing at the foot of the stairs. He needs a 10 to hit her. The roll? A 9. She ducks his longsword as it whistles over her head. There's a woman with long straight blonde hair and a scar on her chin. She leaps off the stairs and attacks Nafia. Her roll? A 4. Nafia nimbly steps to the side, avoiding the blade. The three church members that had been on and behind the crate have fanned out to meet the weeping eyes. One of the new recruits is noticeably larger and stronger than the others. He attacks Flick. Like everyone in this fight, he needs a 10 to hit. I've got a 19. 5 damage, meaning this large man has thrust his sword all the way through Flick's gut, killing him instantly. The second new recruit meets Gamlin, sword to dagger. I've rolled an eight. Gamlin manages to parry the blow. Finally, the man who is standing behind the crate, ostensibly holding this meeting, attacks Ratleg, sword on sword. With a five, Ratleg has parried the blow. You know, I'm not really rooting for either side, but despite winning the initiative and slaying Flick, that was a bad start for the church. Here comes the counterattack. Tana is one of the Weeping Eyes fighters. She needs a 10 to hit the large man on the stairs with her dagger. Natural 20. This is a critical hit. In Tale of the Manticore, I deal with critical hits like this. They do maximum damage, plus a die roll, and then I'll add any modifiers after that. That means I don't even need to roll for this dagger strike. The thief had four hit points, and the minimum damage possible here is five. Tana gets in close and pushes her dagger right up into this man's kidney. The big man crumples in her arms. Next, Nafia strikes back at the woman with long blonde hair and a scar on her chin. She needs a 10 to hit. She's got a 10. Just one point. She nicks the woman in the elbow with her dagger, bringing that woman down to three hit points. Flick is dead, so we're on to Gamlin. Gamlin strikes out at the second recruit. I've rolled a 10. That's just enough. Two points of damage with his dagger. We'll end this round with Ratleg, who strikes out at the man we assume is the leader. I've got a four. 
Once again, steel meets steel, and the blow is parried. <coughs> it's hard to tell who's winning at the end of round one, but my money is going to be on whoever wins the initiative roll for round two. The Weeping Eyes. A two. The Church. A four. Well, this is weird, because if I'm being honest, I think I am rooting for the Weeping Eyes. I only just made them up a few minutes ago for crying out loud. Alright, let's continue. The woman with a scar on her chin attacks Nafia again. Natural 20! Again! That's instant death for Nafia. There's no need to roll. The woman hacks down with her sword, slicing across Nafia's jugular vein. A ribbon of blood flies from Nafia's neck, and she falls to the floor, dead. Next up is the big recruit, who now turns his attention to Tana. He's got a 15. And with eight points of damage, Tana goes down too. That is two kills for this big man already. The second recruit is facing off with Gamlin. He's rolled a two, and the skillful Gamlin manages to deflect that blade once again using just his dagger. The man we assume to be the leader attacks Ratleg. A one? Well, that is a critical fail. My house rule is that on a critical fail, the attacker will miss their next turn. Sometimes they drop their weapon. I think that's the case here. Ratleg has disarmed the leader, and the longsword now lies on the floor between them. Well, that's the end of the church's turn. Now it's the weeping eyes, but there are only two of them left. This does not look good for them at all. Gamlin attacks the young recruit. His nine is not good enough. Ratleg attacks the now weaponless leader. He's rolled a six. The leader has managed to shove one of the crates between them to buy some time, and Ratleg's sword bites into wood instead of flesh. This fight is as good as over. I'm going to roll morale, and I'm going to assign the two weeping eyes a score of eight, rolling 2d6. I've got a 10. The two surviving weeping eyes throw down their weapons just as the church leader picks up his sword. One more roll is needed here, a reaction roll, to see how that leader will treat these new captives. Higher is better, rolling 2d6. A four is not good. I think he gives the eye to the woman with the chin scar and the two recruits, and they hack Gamlin down. Ratleg is spared, but it is yet unknown whether his fate will be better or worse. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are four ways you can help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up my little ultralight game called One Shot in the Dark on DriveThruRPG for a buck fifty. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone who supports the show. I often like to read a review in the credits. This one is from iTunes, and of course, it's from the previous season. The review was posted by Airborne Guy 8. Airborne Guy 8 writes, Boy, am I glad to have found this podcast. Besides the immediate beauty of the story, characters, and production, I have stolen many an idea for my D&D homeworld. Did I mention I have only been listening for five days and have already caught up? Please keep up the amazing work. Bravo. Steal away, Airborne Guy 8. This season seems to be shaping up to be a story about thieves, after all, so it's in the spirit to pilfer ideas. Thanks so much for leaving that review and for your marathon episode binge. Now, let's talk about this episode's great voice talent. The two thieves who start off the season poking around in a crypt are Winton and Laris. They're played by Mike and Johnny from the hilarious Billowing Hilltop D&D actual play podcast, 
which you can find anywhere you get your podcasts. Gamlin, one of the Weeping Eyes gang leaders, was played by Simon J. Williams of the Legend of the Bones podcast. If you like the kind of hybrid thing I do with Manticore, you'll enjoy Legend of the Bones too. Trust me. Ratleg, the only surviving Weeping Eye thief out of the gang, was played by Che of Roleplay Rescue. Che's podcast is a big inspiration to anyone wanting to come back to the table, like me. Finally, thanks to Kev, kick-ass dude on Twitter, for providing the name of the Foul Fallow Inn and Tavern. If you use socials, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. We're going to give it another go. It's a, a bit, bit more, of a bit more zing. Oh, a bit of zing. A bit zing. Of zing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Hello. Hello. With a hello. No, no. no, no. <laughs> hello. Wait, wait till I get through the whole thing. Ready? Wait till. Hello. With a billowing hilltop. Hello. Hello. Oh, dear. <laughs> Waiting to get through the whole thing. No, no. I mean, I, I thought that was the whole thing. The whole thing is hello <laughs> with a billowing hilltop. Okay. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Yeah? Okay. Okay. That was right. <laughs> Uh, that pretty much sums up the show. But if you want to find out any more, you can visit us at www.belowinghilltop.com. Is it com? Does anybody know? <laughs> .org. Is it? It's .com. What do we do? What do we, what do we play? There's monsters. Um, does anybody remember? Walking around. I don't know. And, yeah. And we will be delighted if you to join us around our table as we play Dungeon. Is it 5th edition? Hello? Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We what play Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry, that was me. I what was that noise in the background? There will be noises in the background as we play Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition through the classic Paizo adventure path, The Age of Worms. You can expect this. Oh! Quite a bit of this. Um, I'm completely lost. This. This. I've got a bugbear in my underpants. And one of these. Oh, oh dear. We're on Apple Podcasts and we're on Spotify and we're on TuneIn and you can find us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Uh, and we uh, hope you join us. Thanks very much. Thank you.